David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. Good morning. It's Monday, 9.50 a.m. Central Standard Time. Date is February the 25th, 2019. This is episode 67 of Bitcoin and... And we're just going to get right into this one. Okay, uh, I got a um, news story about Venezuela, uh, Venezuelan is telling about his experience uh, having Bitcoin save his family. Uh, this one is in the Daily Hodel, and you can find Daily Hodel at dailyhodel.com. And this one is written by, uh, looks like staff, Um Venezuelan says Bitcoin and crypto are keeping his family alive as crisis grows increasingly violent. God knows it is getting violent down in Venezuela, y'all. Venezuela economist Carlos Hernandez says cryptocurrencies helped his brother Juan, 28, escape Venezuela last summer. In a report for the New York Times, Hernandez also writes that he keeps all of his money in Bitcoin since keeping it in Bolivares. Venezuela's official currency would be financial suicide. Quote, the last time I checked, the rate of, inda- of daily inflation was around 3.5%. That's daily inflation. The annual inflation rate for 2018 was almost 1.7 million percent. I don't have a bank account abroad, and with Venezuela's currency controls, there's no easy way for me to use a conventional foreign currency like American dollars. End quote. Local Bitcoins, a peer-to-peer crypto trading platform where people are trading fiat for crypto, has been posting record-breaking trading volumes in Venezuela. But even with a platform available via the internet, transactions made in bolivars are capped. Writes Hernandez, quote, I can't change too many Bitcoins at once, though. The government doesn't monitor cryptocurrency transactions yet, but it does monitor transactions in bolivars. And any worth about $50 U.S. or more will automatically freeze your account until you can explain to your bank where the funds came from, end quote. Still, you can say that cryptocurrencies have saved our family. I now cover our household's expenses on my own, end quote. Venezuela has witnessed a mass exodus of nearly 3 million people with nearly 1 million fleeing to neighboring Colombia. Opposition leader Juan Guaido has been battling ousted Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro as the political duel in Venezuela plunges the nation even further into a worsening humanitarian crisis. According to Hernandez, I went out for milk. I went to every one of the stores within walking distance of my house that hasn't shut down over the past year. Not one of the 20 had milk. On Saturday, Maduro severed ties with Colombia and has rejected the aid, including food and medicine, that is designated for Venezuelans and sits at the Colombian and Brazilian borders. Colombian diplomats have been ordered out of Venezuela within 24 hours. Good God almighty. As trucks hauling aid try to pass through the Brazilian border, violence erupts. Trucks crossing the San Francisco de Paula Santander International Bridge linking Urena, Venezuela, and Cucuta, Colombia have been set on fire. Wow. Man. Some of the aid was salvaged. The New York Times reports that the violence turned deadly and that two protesters were killed in Santa Elena de Uarin, where the National Guard fired tear gas and live ammunition at civilians and charged against them in armed vehicles, according to the opposition lawmaker Americo de Grazia. Citizens are also posting disturbing videos of deadly conflicts, and there's a few tweets with some videos attached to them, and it's not pretty. A young man was reportedly shot and killed by Maduro loyalists. 
The humanitarian aid comes from the U.S., which has imposed sanctions on Venezuela. In the U.K., which is aligned with the U.S. in support of the opposition, the Bank of England refuses to release to Marduro the gold reserves held on behalf of Venezuela. Yeah, you ain't alone. Apparently, other countries are having that issue, too. Probably because the Bank of England doesn't have the gold. Anyway. Maduro, meanwhile, still maintains supporters. Of course, he's going to maintain supporters. You can you can buy a lot as long as you've got something to give. So that's it for uh, for this guy. Um, but we can dive we can dive a little deeper with uh, this gentleman. His name is Carlos. You can find him at Carlos underscore T eight one five, and he is he's actually is an economist and has written a, a longer article that I am going to read to you now that uh, the Daily Hotel got some of some of their stuff from. But the Daily Hotel kind of framed it, you know, it, it, uh, wrapping around some of the, the larger issues that are going on in Venezuela. Um, this one is an opinion piece in the New York Times, and it's written by Carlos Hernandez. That's the gentleman that uh, we are all talking about here. And uh, his piece is called Bitcoin Has Saved My Family. Uh, Let's see. On Tuesday, I went shopping for milk. With the chronic food shortages in Venezuela, that errand already is very complicated, but there's an extra layer of difficulty for me. I don't own bolivars, Venezuela's official currency. I keep all my money in Bitcoin. Keeping it in bolivars would be financial suicide. I don't have a bank account abroad, and with Venezuela's currency controls, there's no easy way for me to use a conventional foreign currency like American dollars. Things just keep getting crazier here. Venezuela now has two presidents. One of them, Maduro, wants to take on the British billionaire Richard Branson in a competition of charity concerts. While we Venezuelans are going hungry, there have been violent standoffs over humanitarian aid piling up at the borders with Colombia and Brazil. And before I can buy milk, I need to convert bitcoins into bolivars. Actually, that part is easier than you might think. I go through the listings on localbitcoins.com, the exchange that most Venezuelans seem to use, looking for offers to buy my bitcoins from people who use the same bank I do. That way, the wire transfer can go through immediately. Once I accept the offer, the bitcoins get deducted from my wallet and are held in escrow by the site. I send my banking information to the buyer and wait. After the buyer sends me the bolivars via wire transfer, I release the bitcoins bitcoins from escrow and they are transferred to the buyer's bitcoin wallet. We give each other a positive score and that's it. The whole process takes about 10 minutes. Turns out, and I'm not the only Venezuelan using cryptocurrencies, the local market for Bitcoin broke a record on April 17th, reaching $1 million worth on that day alone, Bloomberg reported. Venezuela has been ranking a second worldwide in volume of activity on localbitcoins.com after Russia. According to Coindance, a website that monitors cryptocurrency transactions during the week ending of February 16th, people in Venezuela traded about $6.9 million on localbitcoins.com compared with about $13.8 million in Russia. I'm converting at that average Bitcoin exchange rate coin market cap applied that week. <clears throat> That's saying something for a country in its fifth year of a recession whose economy contracted by some 18% in 2018. I can't change too many Bitcoins at once. The government doesn't monitor cryptocurrency transactions, but does monitor tractions and bolivars. And anything above 50 bucks automatically freezes your account until you can explain to your bank where the funds came from. My God, just reading that twice, just it gets worse. Still, you could say the cryptocurrencies have saved our family. I now cover our household expenses on my own. My father is a government employee in a printing department with no paper and earns about $6 a month. Uh, my mother is a stay-at-home mom with no income, and cryptocurrencies helped my brother Juan, 28, escape Venezuela last summer. For years, he tried to make it as a lawyer here, but in times of hyperinflation, everyone is constantly getting poorer, including a lawyer's clients. Juan was earning so little that he was actually spending money to work, buying stationery, taxi fare, etc. Eventually, he gave up. Early last year, he started doing graphic design and translation online, but most websites pay for freelance work through PayPal and the like, which we can't use because exchange controls here allow Venezuelan banks to use only local currency. For the outside world, even those of us 
who have bank accounts here are effectively unbanked. So Juan had to turn to cryptocurrencies to get paid. Thanks to those earnings, he started thinking about leaving Venezuela. He was able to buy what he needed for the trip to Colombia. Clothes, backpack, smartphone. He put some money aside. He even gained a little weight, an anomaly around here these days. Cryptocurrencies also helped him during the four-day trip itself. Venezuelan military personnel at the borders have a reputation for seizing the money of people who want to leave. But Juan's being in Bitcoin was accessible only with a password he had memorized. Borderless money is more than a buzzword for those of us who live in a collapsing economy and a collapsing dictatorship. The plan was for him to send money home through cryptocurrencies after he earned enough. Western Union converts remittances into bolivars at the official government rate, which often is about half of that of, of the rate on the black market. Some intermediaries do convert at the black market rate, and many of my Venezuelan friends living abroad use those. But if you don't have a trusted trader, you can easily get scammed. And the government has been trying to shut down go-betweens like those for years. Using Bitcoin is cheaper, faster, and safer. We had it all figured out. But then Juan couldn't find a decent job in Colombia. After three months, he ran out of money, and I had to send him Bitcoin so that he could come back to Venezuela. And even cryptocurrencies can only go so far. On Tuesday, after changing my Bitcoins into Bolivars, about $5 worth, I went out for milk. I went to every one of the stores within walking distance that hadn't shut down over the past year, and not one of those 20 had milk. But I had to buy something, anything, before my Bolivars lost value, so I bought cheese from a store that had only cheese. Well, it also had transparent green plastic bags with no labels, and what the seller said was corn flour, but I didn't dare buy that. Again, this is Carlos Hernandez. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at, uh, where, where is it? <clears throat> at Carlos underscore T815. That's at Carlos underscore T815. And um, I'm, I'm hoping that he will uh, uh, do some more stories. Anyway, okay, so uh, on, on to a Bitcoinist.com article. Um, Fidelity becomes first financial institution to take Bitcoin lightning torch. Now, this should be in torchlight, but this is pretty major, man. Uh, So I wanted to go ahead and do it here. Uh, Fidelity Digital is a a large, uh, is the, well, it's, it's the digital asset arm of Fidelity Investments. And Fidelity Investments is massive. They manage $7.2 trillion in total assets with 27 million customers. It's the United States leader in 401k retirement saving plans and is one of the largest 403b retirement plan providers for not-for-profit institutions. The investment giant announced it had received the LN Torch on Friday, February 22nd, from Tokyo-based and self-proclaimed Bitcoin maximalist who's interested in mining, trading, Twitter user, at Wiz. <laughs> Nice. Who received it from Bitcoin entrepreneur Charlie Shrimp. Quote, who wants to be the next torchbearer, tweeted Wiz. Reply with an LN notice for 3.64 million Satoshis that all return, who I deem to be the most trustworthy. The 3.64 million Satoshis equate to about $142 USD at current market BTC price. Of course, for those of you who have, you know, just now crawling under a rock, we've had a uh, slight correction in the price of Bitcoin over the over Sunday. Oh, it's ugly. Okay. So, um, Fidelity Digital Assets then replied, quote, we and our research team at the Fidelity Center for Applied Technology have received the LN torch from Atwiz. Holy crap. Nice. Quote, who should we pass it to? LN Trust Chain, Fidelity asked, which is expected to launch as Bitcoin custody service next month. And they end up effectively being the 229th torchbearer. As Bitcoin, as, as Bitcoinist reported, Lightning Torch has gained a surprising level of recognition in the few weeks it has existed. The initiative involves passing a Lightning payment between nodes, with each receiving user adding 10,000 Satoshis, or roughly around 34 cents, and passing it on to a new node. Fidelity Digital Assets becomes the 229th entity overall to get the torch, according to the official tracker website. 
Previous bearers include BitMEX Research, Binance CZ, and John, uh, Tron's Justin Sun. Mm. But more importantly, Fidelity becomes the first financial institution to get its hands on the digital torch. This may not be surprising, however, as Fidelity has been spearheading the institutional plunge into cryptocurrency over the past few months. In October of 2018, the investment giant announced it would open cryptocurrency trading to its 27 million customers. Therefore, participation in this payment relay will likely provide some valuable experience for Fidelity Digital Assets that is looking to create a full-service enterprise-grade platform for digital assets, according to the founding head, Tom Jessup. He adds that, quote, family offices, hedge funds, and other sophisticated investors are starting to think seriously about this space. It will also be interesting to monitor whether this nascent, albeit rapidly growing, second layer network will be able to handle the relayed BTC payment as it changes hands and snowballs. Though perhaps that may be the entire point of the whole thing, bringing awareness to this new technology as it is already producing some unique use cases. According to monitoring resource 1ml.com, there are currently 6,561 reachable nodes and 30,000 channels on Lightning, offering a total payment capacity of 718 BTC valued at $2.85 million USD. The figures represent an impressive monthly growth of 26% in its network capacity. Let's say that again. In a month, the capacity in general, of Lightning Network has grown 26% in a month. That's a little less than 1% a day. 1% a day. Man. All right. So Bitcoin has reported that participants in the ongoing transaction relay has been urging Tesla CEO Elon Musk to paste an invoice and receive the torch. This follows after Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey became the bearer to a to much fanfare earlier this month while hinting that Bitcoin Lightning payments may be coming to Twitter. But you can kind of try this already. And that's the end of the article. And try this already is referring to uh, Tippin.me and their uh, button that they've been able to, or basically a, a plug-in for Chrome that in, if you're in Twitter proper, it adds a, a Lightning button Uh, to every individual tweet. So if you see somebody and they say something you like and you've got the extension and you've got, you know, the ability to send a lightning payment, you can just click that button and boom, you can just tip them whatever you want. And the fact that the button is right there on the tweet, man, that is, that's, uh, that's a UX home run. Again, that is a UX home run. It's like, it's a button and it does this thing. And this thing makes sense. So you press the button and you're in, and with that one single button press, you're automatically engaged with the lightning network. Now as to whether or not you have the capacity to further that engagement is, is another matter. That's another UX problem. However, being able to, to just press a button and crank that whole son of a bitch up, that's important. And that, that's a UX lesson for all of us, no matter what we're doing. If we're designing anything, ask yourself, God, can I turn this into a button? And if the answer is yes, do it. If it sucks later, forget about it. But chances are real good if you want to do X and there's a way to make a button press to do that X, make a button press. So anyway, um, that's going to do it for the Fidelity News. Giacomo Zucco is next up in uh, in the stack with this. I don't know if you guys were kind of monitoring this over the uh, weekend, but uh, a, a gentleman by the name of Connor Brown um, has uh, called out some people at Stanford, uh, specifically a, a, a particular professor, for being a ripple shill to their students in an academic setting. That's right. A ripple shill trying to scam students into buying their crap currency. And they were doing it on a university campus with somebody who sits on the ripple board that was asked to guest lecture to a bunch of clueless freaking MBAs. I mean, the, the, the ethics violations here, I'm sorry. It's you should as an adult woman, 
this what's her face susan athy should know better she should have known better and she's trying to deflect but it's not going to work because she basically stood up in front of a bunch of clueless mbas at stanford and told them that ripple was worth something and it's not it's garbage so stay away from it connor you did the right damn thing so what's what's uh giacomo saying well he's replying directly to Connor Brown um, and um, and Susan Athey uh, by saying, because Susan Athey, well, let's, let's just, let's get into the whole damn thing. Um, Connor Brown writes, posted below is an email that I sent to the Stanford <clears throat> Graduate School of Business or GSB after a presentation in one of my classes. My professors refused to talk in person After bringing this to their attention over a month later, I still have heard no response other than, quote, we will get back to you on this. And then he posts a a Google Docs uh, document uh, or or link to a document that is the uh, email that that he actually sent. And I'm not going to read it because it's it's lengthy, but basically he's calling out this Susan Athey who gave the presentation to the clueless MBA students. Um, So... Here, Giacomo replies, uh, great job, really, kudos. Well, Winifred, and I don't know who Winifred is, uh, replied to, is replying in this thread with a tweet from Susan Athey, who was uh, in turn replying directly to Connor Brown. And she says, unlike what you might think from Connor's post, the lecture and slides are very high level, intuitive. And this was MBA class with no background in blockchain, just trying to give the big picture as well as some of the challenges. Giacomo immediately just just shoots back, says, so one, these slides by Susan Athey surely aren't university level. I've assisted high school students with way more correct, documented, complete, structured essays. Two, they don't really address the main points raised by Connor Brown, or Connor Brown's document. Three, the only macroscopic and serious mistake I found quickly reviewing them is in the, is in the claim on slide 11. Um, That ripple is a decentralized network while it's clearly not by any account. Central UNL definer, otherwise no consensus. So Susan writes right back to directly to Giacomo and says slides say decentralized exchange, to con- contrast with Coinbase, Bitstamp at all. Early on, market makers buy or place buy-sell offers through Ripple Network. Payment could be sent across currencies without holding funds in Mt. Gox at time when exchange not established, not about mining slash validators. Giacomo fires back. You are correct. What I mentioned as the most serious mistake is basically just me misquoting. I apologize. While we could discuss hours about the meaning of decentralized exchange, you are not claiming in that slide that Ripple is a decentralized network. So, um, yeah, this whole thing is is really weird because she's somehow or another is able to fend off people like Giacomo, uh, who's a good dude, man. I mean, he's a, he's a really, really good dude. Um, let me see here where she actually wrote back. Yeah. Okay. So I can't, uh, I can't, f- I don't know. Hold on here. Oh, you're, that's why. That's why. Okay. I got it. Um, when Susan first wrote back, uh, to Connor, she said, Hey, I was a guest lecturer in this class. <clears throat> with Ripple role disclosed, not the professor. Connor never ta- contacted me or shared this letter with me. His description of my lecture is a caricature, and I disagree with his caricature characterizations of the lecture. And what I find amazing about this this exchange right here is that this is, you know, Connor tweeted out. You know, posted below as an email and kind of gave an overview and then and then replied to himself with a link to the Google Doc. Susan Athey replied directly to that and says, Hey, I was a guest lecturer in this class. Connor never contacted me. She's replying directly to Connor and is speaking about him in 
in a person other, you know, in a person other than first person. I mean, that's a, that is as dismissive and rude and, and belies the absolute theater in which these people in at, at this level of academia exist. And I've been there. I was in academia for a long, long time. And I can tell you, some people are good, are good, you know, good professors and they take their shit seriously and they don't, but they don't take themselves too seriously. When you start replying to somebody directly and you can't even say you never contacted me rather than this person's name never contacted me. I mean, just the, just the dismissive nature of this is, is really telling. So he writes back and says, hey, Dr. Athey, thank you for responding. You were correct. This email was sent to the professors hosting your talk. I'm sorry they didn't follow up with you. If you disagree with content in my letter, could you publicly post the slides from the talk? Thanks again for your time. And then she does so. And then that's sort of where, where Giacomo starts getting into it. But the whole fact, I mean, the whole fact is she sits on the board of Ripple. She is, in fact, let's see here. She is, in fact, faculty at Stanford. When you're faculty at Stanford and you're asked to give a lecture, you're not magically not responsible for the information that you divulge. She says she was a guest lecturer, like some dipshit pulled her off the street and said, hey, would you? She's not some dipshit off the street. She's a freaking economist at Stanford. She's on the faculty of that graduate school of business. Uh, she doesn't have an out. And all these people that are making ex, you know, excuses for her, don't. Stop making excuses for her. Just stop it. She went. She talked to a bunch of clueless MBAs, telling them about Ripple, making a comparison to Bitcoin. She sits on the Ripple board. The ethics violation is clear. The ethics violation is clear. I'm sorry. It's clear. It's clear. It's clear. People need to be more responsible for the crap that they pull than being able to just say, you know, magically that she wasn't responsible because she wasn't the professor. I don't really give a shit if you were the professor or not, Susan. The point is, is that you as faculty of that department went to a classroom that you've lectured in before and you lectured for somebody else and you told them that Ripple was cool and all the great things about it. Even if you did disclose that you were on the Ripple board, you shouldn't have done this. I'm sorry because it muddies the water. It's an, I'm sorry, the ethics, no. You're not getting a pass on this, so screw you. Getting on up into the stack, we are at Coindesk. <clears throat> Australian financial regulator is trialing blockchain technology to automate reporting of cross-border transaction, transactions by institutions. Great. This is by Yogita Khatri. And like I said, for Coindesk.com, this was written this morning at one o'clock in the morning, my time. An Australian financial regulator is trialing blockchain technology to automate reporting of cross-border transactions by institutions. ZDNet reported Sunday that the Australian Transaction Report and Analysis Center has partnered with the Swinburne University of Technology in Melbourne to build a prototype for the trial. I hope they're not using if this, then that because you could probably use if this, then that. The two partners will specifically examine how blockchain and smart contracts, as well as other technologies, can help entities such as banks to automate reporting of international funds, transfer instructions to the regulator. Australia's Anti-Money Laundering and Counterterrorism Financing Act mandates that institutions or specific categories of individuals involved in cross-border transfer of funds, including payer, sender, and beneficiary institution, must report details of the transaction within 10 days. The trial effort started in December and is likely to run for a year, according to the report. Last month, Swinburne University collaborated with tech firm oh, Cap Gemini to establish a new global blockchain center of excellence in Melbourne. Hmm. The blockchain trial, therefore, will likely involve 
Capgemini's network from development to production, ZDNet suggests. Back in March 2017, Austrac also opened an innovation center dedicated in part to blockchain research. Last spring, the agency brought brought in new rules for cryptocurrency exchanges aimed to counter money laundering and terrorism financing, AML slash CTF, including mandated registration with Austrac. So, yeah, I mean, this is just, this is the dogs trying to jump on the cars that's already pulling out of the driveway. So, uh, you know, it to be expected, not sure how effective it's going to be. Um, everybody's got it like this entire thing has got a 10 year head start with Bitcoin. Everybody else doesn't have as much, as much lead time as Bitcoin does. So all the other crap that's out there are, is going to be the, the, again, again, this goes back to what I was saying about why it is that I'm not terribly upset about all the shit coins. Because they're they're just fodder. Australia, uh, the, the, what is the name of it? Um, Austrac, Australian Transaction Reports and Analysis Center. Who do you think they're going to be able to get their sink their teeth into first? It's not going to be Bitcoin. It's going to be it's going to be all it's going to be a whole bunch of the shit coins. And while they're wasting their energy chewing on something that is really absolutely kind of very worthless, not kind of worthless, very worthless, we can roll on. So, um, yeah, good luck guys. That's all I got to say. Good freaking luck. And that's going to do it for your morning roundup. Oh no, no, it's not. No, it's not. Got one more thing. Um, I want to kind of engaged in a little bit of a discussion with, um, oh, let me get his name, Brandon, Brandon Quittem. If you don't remember, Brandon wrote a hell of a piece on uh, the difference or not the similarities between Bitcoin as a network and a fungal network. Uh, Specifically, I think specifically he was talking about mycelium. One of the first uh, Bitcoin ands that I did covered not his piece because I didn't know it existed, but what I knew about the mycelial network because both me and Brandon pretty much agree that one of the best one of the best models to look look at uh, to try to identify or or label what this is is to look at what mycelium does. And there's, there's another fungus that is completely different than, than, uh, mycelial, uh, based fun or mycelial type fungus or edible type fungus, or, or, you know, the, the kind of fungus that we're used to. And that's a slime mold. Specifically, you can look at, uh, dictyostelium is a slime mold. But what I wanted to say was that in 2010, um, a Japanese research group, grew dictyostelium on a uh, on a central mass of nutrient and they put other smaller masses of nutrients in the exact positions of the Tokyo rail system their their uh, i guess subway or or train system or or whatever uh, and put it in the exact locations in the exact, you know, well, I'm not the same distance away because we're obviously talking about like a Petri dish or, or, you know, one of the larger uh, uh, Petri dishes that you can get, which can get large, especially if they're custom done um, and place these little food globules in the exact same places that major rail station on and off points were, which, you know, pretty much represent like major neighborhoods around Tokyo and getting into the outskirts Come to find out that when the dictyostelium spread from its initiation point, which was the center representative of the center of Tokyo, it spread in search of other food masses. And when it came across a food mass, um, all the um, little branches that it sent out from its main mass died back uh, once it found the food source. And then from that food source, it continued on to find other food sources and the only thing left in the, dicti- the of the living tissue of the dictyostelium that was high functioning were the routes between these food masses. And again, since they were representing the train stations, uh, the whole study was to find out 
was dictyostelium efficient in laying out quote unquote rail tracks, like using the least amount of distance to get to where, where it is the needed to go. And the study suggested that it was like, I want to say it was, it was a single digit efficiency gain, like 8% more efficient or something like that. Cause you know, human engineers are pretty good. You know, we're not bad. So, but the, th- the fact is, is that a blind brainless mass of tissue that is, um, Sort of, it's sort of like hive mind. Uh, Dictyostelium is a is a weird critter. I'll, I'm not going to get all the way into it, but because it's you know it's not necessary. If you want to look at it, uh, type in Dictyostelium and let's see if I can even spell that thing. Yeah, I'm not going to be able to spell it. <laughs> hold on, hold on. Yeah, okay, Dictyostelium is spelled D-I-C-T-Y-O-S-T-E-L-I-U-M, Disquidium, D-I-S-C-O-I-D-E-U-M, Dictyostelium Disquidium. That is the Latin for the, for the organism. In either event, the whole point that I'm bringing this to you is the fact that, that, that Bitcoin and its network is the first iteration of artificial intelligence or a model of artificial intelligence engineering fintech, right? If you lit the natural thing with us people as the nodes, we're, we're, we're like sort of the masses of nutrient that these things, you know, were reaching out and they were finding these really, really quick paths, the quickest paths between two points in this network of points and if we look at ourselves as points or nodes, then the routes between us will just, they will, they will form. We don't need to force it. We don't need to be so damned impatient that, you know, that we're like, why isn't it solved now? Why isn't it solved now? Like you hear all these idiots that are always talking about how Bitcoin sucks because it hasn't solved the earth's problems. You know, it, it takes time. It's a, it is a natural process. And to tell you the truth, every time we force something to fit in a square hole, we kind of fail. I mean, we, we kind of do. If we were to have, oh, I don't know, a modicum of patience and let the system, the natural system, as us acting as nodes, and instead of us trying to just force our freaking will on everything every waking moment of the damn day, then... Maybe, just maybe, we can let the system develop itself like the Dictyostelium system did to tell us that we could have had an 8% efficiency gain on where we laid the tracks in the the, uh, the uh, Tokyo uh, rail system. It was 8% more efficient if we just, sh- if they, because they shut up. They just said, let's just unleash the damn thing and see what it does. And they were like looking at it going, hey, look. We could have gone around that way. Oh, look, we could have gone around that way. When they measured the length, they would have used 8% less man hours. They would have used 8% less resources. They would have had 8% less accidents. They would have had 8% less problems on the job. I mean, everything is multiplied by that efficiency gain. So all you guys that are bitching and cannot stop bitching, try it. Give it a shot. All right, now, now, okay, so that will do it for your morning roundup. Vital statistics brought to you by bitinfocharts.com. I don't need to tell you that we saw a massive red candle Sunday morning at about 6 a.m. Central Standard Time is when this huge thing occurred. And there is, by the way, there is some uh, conjecture. Uh, I saw this either last night or early this morning that um, I think it was 17,000 ETH were market sold, not OTC, market sold within a one-minute candle and that it was that 
that precipitated the loss on all the other stuff. Because, you know, when Bitcoin, when Bitcoin goes down, the whole group goes down. But in this particular case, it looks like somebody very well might have initiated this entire thing with Ether rather than with Bitcoin. And I'm trying to see if I've got... Um, I thought I had had that up there, up here somewhere. Nope, nope. I guess not. In either event, it doesn't. It doesn't really, really. It doesn't really matter. Um, it it when you sell something on the open market rather than like like if I have if I have a tranche of like seventeen thousand Bitcoin, which I <laughs> which, which I don't. <laughs> I wish, um, and I wanted to sell it, and I cared about not wrecking the shit out of other people, then I would, I would find a buyer OTC like over the counter and say, look, once you make a bid on my 17,000 Bitcoin and me and you will come to an agreement without announcing that pricing structure, uh, to the order book on all the exchanges, right? Cause when, when, when you're doing shit like this, all, everything seems to pick up the fact if you sell it on the market, Everybody picks up on what's being sold, how much is it being sold, and it automatically affects the price. If you do it OTC, it's all private, essentially. So it doesn't really affect the price. You come to a, a, an agreement with whoever it is that you're selling it to as to what you will sell the tranche for, and then you get rid of it that way. And in that in that environment, it doesn't screw up the markets. In this case... Um, it seems fairly clear that whoever sold 17,000, I mean, essentially what they did is they went to GDAX or whatever, put 17,000 Ether on their account, and then pushed the button that said sell at market price, or maybe, you know, a little bit different than that. But essentially, it was like what most people would do, sell at market price. And then all of a sudden that inform that data gets chewed into the machine and everybody loses their freaking mind and it's a chain reaction. And it looks like that's what caused the issue uh, Sunday morning. And we're now recovering from it. So let's get into vitals. Bitcoin is at an average of 3,816. It looks like the high is going to be out at... Uh, Bitfinex at 3,893 and the low is going to be over at, uh, GDAX at 3,791, 326,000 Bitcoins were changed hands in the last 24 hours with an average of 13 point or 13,600 per hour. Uh, over the last 24 hours, 1.4 million BTC have been, has changed hands at 53,000 BTC per hour. Average transaction value was 4.36 BTC, and the median transaction value has dropped to 0.02 BTC, or about $84 USD. Block time is stable at 10 minutes, 26 seconds. We have lost 0.75% of hash rate in the last 24 hours, but we are above... 40 exahashes sitting at 42.59 exahashes per second. 0.24 BTC has been collected on fees per block and a total over the last 24 hours in fees totals 33 Bitcoin. That's all. That's a whole lot of money. That's a lot of money, man. Um, the last GitHub commit was this morning sometime, uh, February 25th, 2019. Ether is at 138. Litecoin is at 45. Bcash is at 136. BSV is at 68. Ethereum Classic is at four and a half, four and a quarter. And Dogecoin is at 0.002 USD. And Dogecoin's 28,684 t- transactions over the last 24 hours, as usual, smokes. Big. <clears throat> Bcash is 13,600 and BSV's piddly 3,549 transactions in the last 24 hours. So the joke coin making jokes out of Bcash and BSV. And I still like Doge a hell of a lot better than either one of those piles of trash. That is your vital statistics for the day.
Marty's Bent is for Friday, February the 22nd, 2019, issue number 426, Keep Your Head on a Swivel. And he's got a, uh, a tweet from Tomas Bloomer. The gold standard could be knocked down because people were not protecting it. They got complacent and accepted the paper proxies even after they were no longer redeemable in anything else than themselves. Bitcoin is also not immune to complacency that will follow its success. So on this, Marty has to say, or you may wake up one day and find we slipped up with Bitcoin the way our ancestors did with gold. Freedom and liberty come with the cost of never-ending vigilance and our forefathers got complacent while the gold standard reigned supreme. Following FDR, or allowing FDR to confiscate their wealth and centralize it in vaults, effectively neutering the geographic decentralization of the gold supply, allowing the government to issue gold notes that overrepresented the amount of gold they held in reserves, eventually printing so many notes that the gold note market became completely disconnected from reality and pushing us towards the world of unfettered monetary experiments, which have led to a massive wealth divide. We would be naive to think that the state won't try to bastardize the Bitcoin standard in the same way. Always vigilant, onwards. Final thought, nothing like five old fashions in an overall quality conversation. Enjoy your weekend, freaks. And that's going to do it for Marty's Bit. Okay, Torchlight. Uh, we've already gotten into some of it, uh, but uh, the one thing we, we already know that Fidelity took it up, and you know, like it's it's like it's it fi- it got unstuck. It was uh, it was stuck a little bit. Uh, Hodelnot said that uh, the LN Trust chain has finally moved on. Send your invoice for three point six seven million satoshis to at Matt Walsh in, <clears throat> in Bows, And so, uh, for a little while it was kind of stuck. Uh, and you know, Hodel nodded kind of was, uh, bemoaning the fact that when you hold onto the torch too long, it, it has a tendency to screw up its momentum and it does. So, you know, we had a, a situation where somebody had it, I think, uh, over 24 hours and, you know, we were all getting, you know, getting a little antsy about it. So it's finally moved on as we talked about it ended up in the hands of like all, you know, uh, all, all kinds of, uh, people, but, um, VJ Boyapati is one of the people that had it last. Now I don't know who has it right now as of 10 40 AM, uh, February the 25th, but, um, there's something that VJ says here that's disturbing and it's, not disturbing because he said it. It's disturbing because even somebody like VJ um, is sort of isn't allowed to do certain things because the state says X, right? So here's what he says. Um, Mike in space, this is, I'm going to get into the middle of this, of this tweet storm. Uh, VJ is actually has a really good tweet storm, by the way. Uh, talking about the LN trust chain. But the point that I want to get to is at the end of his uh, uh, tweet storm, Mike in space at Mike in space uh, replies saying, Adam, send it to at Zaya underscore solder or at Janie Gack and show the world the true power of censorship resistance. It would be fitting coming from you. So here's the, where it gets a little sad. VJ writes back and says, yes, I really, really, really wanted to send it to at Zaya underscore Sauter, but U.S. law makes it very risky for me as a citizen. Very sad that two peaceful people cannot transact with each other across the world because of the state. All right, here we go. Right there in that one tweet is a host of freaking problems. You know, VJ's one, like, I got a ton of respect for VJ. And I'm thinking about what he said here, and I have to ask myself the question, well, what would you do? And I guess, I, I guess because not, you know, nobody knows who I am. I don't have the following VJ has. 
nowhere close. I'm like, I'm like skating on like 1200 Twitter followers, man. And like a couple of downloads a week on my podcast. Um, I'm not somebody who anybody's really watching, right? VJ is. And still I have to ask myself, if I was in VJ's shoes, would I send the torch to somebody in Iran? Because that's what this problem is. Both of these people are in Iran. Iran's on the watch list. Iran's a terrorist state. Iran is like, you know, no, like, uh, what do they call it? Uh, uh, persona non grata for anybody in the United States. We're not allowed to talk to them or send them money or receive money from anybody in, in that's Iranian. And that doesn't mean Iranian descent. It basically means people who are functionally living in Iran as Iranian citizens at the moment. Um, and I still have to, you know, I have to ask myself, would I? And it would be easier for me to do it than it was sure as shit would be for VJ. All eyes are on VJ. They know he's got the torch. And even if they knew that I had the torch, nobody really is like watching me, right? Which is, which is fine. That's not the point. The point ends up being, it would be easier for me to send it to to a citizen of Iran and just pop the, you know, uh, raise my finger to the state and say, F you, man. I'll send this thing to whoever it is that I want to send it to. And even, even then, if I want to be absolutely positively truthful to myself, I would think twice. I'd be like, shit, I'm about to transact in a way that is a, I don't know if it's a federal offense. I'm pretty sure it is. If, if you transact monetarily with somebody in a terrorist state, I can't imagine it not being a federal offense. That said, what was Bitcoin supposed to solve? Censorship resistance. And it does that really, really well. Where it fails is not actually where, it's not where Bitcoin fails, it's where we fail. Where we're not strong, where we're not brave, where we, you know, we feel the boot on our neck and we don't want to make it any worse. And then you ask yourself, who can blame them? You know, who, who can blame them? <clears throat> would you really, would you really do it? And ask, your, ask yourself that question. Would you send a Bitcoin transaction to somebody in Iran and not give a shit? If you were this public, if you were this visible and everybody knew where to look, because they, 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 you can follow this thing, right? Um, not in, in the exact same way that you can follow a Bitcoin transaction for, for damn sure. It's a hell of a lot more, uh, more hidden, but something as public as, as the trust, as the LN trust chain, I don't know, man, you know, ask, so do that, do that. Ask yourself that question. What, if you had the, if you had the LN trust chain and you were in a country that was even remotely as powerful as the United States that had sanctioned, uh, Iran, or any country for that matter, um, to the point that transacting monetarily was illegal, would you send the trust chain to somebody in that country if all eyes were on you? Again, it's not the failure of Bitcoin. And it's not the failure of the network. It's not a failure of the tech behind it. It's not a failure of the theory behind it. It's a failure of us. It's a, it's a complete failure of us. And there's, and there's no reason to, to look at VJ and say, oh, you're weak. You're not, he's not weak. He's just a guy, dude. I mean, it, again, it's one of those things. It's like, it, it may be a little bit eye-opening to do the exercise. Would I do that? And see what you, and, and be quiet, be still, you know, don't be mowing the lawn or something like that and, and ask yourself this question. Sit and, and, and think reflectively about this because here's a guy who he, he knows who this woman is. Most, a lot of us in Bitcoin do. I've, I, I don't, you know what? I don't know if I follow her or not. Or him. Sorry, I don't, don't know why I said that. Yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm not following, but I am now. I can at least do that. I can at least do that. Um, it's not VJ's. It's not VJ's fault. That's all I'm saying is that we should probably start thinking about where Bitcoin fails. May not be anything to do with Bitcoin. 
Bitcoin may fail simply because we don't know how to use it. We don't really know what this thing is. We don't really know what this thing is. Is there anybody who actually feel comfortable saying, yes, I know exactly what Bitcoin is across the technology, the social implications, the legal implications, the financial implications, the future of, I don't know, man, I would feel, I would feel very uncomfortable saying that. So what I will say is I don't know what the hell Bitcoin is and I don't know what it's going to look like in the future. But one thing is for sure, this failure is the failure of us still being scared of the state. And we have probably really good reason to be scared of the state. That said, let's get on into uh, Daily Trainwreck. Today's Daily Trainwreck is brought to you by Jimmy's long-lost cousin, Warren Buffett. And he says, Bitcoin has no unique value at all. It is a delusion, basically. How's Kraft doing, Warren? How's that Kraft? For those of you who don't know, Warren Buffett's uh, Berkshire Hathaway's position in Kraft is quite substantial, and Kraft freaking tanked on earnings. I don't even know how you could have hid that from the that kind of tanking or or that kind of miss on your earnings. It was so large. It was so large that I just don't see how that wasn't leaked before earnings came out. And it freaking tanked the stock of which Warren is a massive holder. And here, all of a sudden, here comes Warren Buffett talking about Bitcoin. He's using it as a distraction because he... He holds a dog with fleas and he doesn't want to admit it or he doesn't want to be held responsible for not cleaning up his portfolio and changing things out because Warren, with the type of position that he has in craft, should have known. And he should have cut his shit. He should have sold it all and exchanged it, even though it probably would have tanked that company. If he was if he was any kind of of, you know, I mean, he's a mastermind. He's not stupid. He's one of the richest men in the world because, you know, for a reason. But you, he should have known. So here it is. Kraft is a complete embarrassment to Berkshire Hathaway. And what does he do? Shits on Bitcoin. I mean, if that's all this old man has left in his bag of tricks, then I, I don't know, man. That just seems that just seems so lame to attack Bitcoin when your own failure is like. Oh my God, it's magnitudes, magnet order orders of magnitudes worse. So yeah, sure. Shit on Bitcoin, Warren. That'll solve all your problems. Oh God. Oh, let's do a joke. Daily Joke Corner is brought to you by, of all people, the United States Department of the Interior. Seriously, it's from their it's from their Twitter account, the United States Department of the Interior, and it's got the blue check mark and everything. Um, what? <clears throat> speaking of Warren Buffett being underwater for craft, what do you call an underwater joke? A manatees. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I know. I got a soft spot in my heart for the United States Department of the Interior because my uncle, when he was younger, um, was a forest ranger. He worked for the Department of the Interior as a forest ranger. And he got the he got the cool forest ranger job too, by the way. They put that dude on horseback out in the wilderness in, in uh uh Northern New Mexico and Southern Colorado, and he surveyed uh, in the backcountry. He would camp, but this is like you know, kind of like by yourself or with like one other person or something like that. Maybe three would go, and they'd go out for like you know a week, and they would just they would 
survey, uh, not really property lines, but other stuff for, for, you know, how to do, you know, like, you know, wildlife management, where streams are, have, you know, have they changed their course? Is there any, like, you know, surveying is a lot, you know, it, out in the wilderness is a hell of a lot different than surveying if you're getting a plat done for buying a house or something like that. But, you know, one of the, you know, one of those days they ran across a, a, a it, I swear to God, it was an abandoned, uh, an old West town out in the middle of freaking nowhere that had been forgotten about for years and years and years. In the stagecoach station, he found um, a double barrel, 12 gauge shotgun. And we're talking this thing, this thing was probably made around, I don't know, 18, 1880, 1890, something like that. I mean, it's not, you know, all that value is valuable to me because it came from my uncle. The whole point is, is that he found it in a freaking ghost town. How cool is that? Right. Anyway. So yeah, once I saw this joke and if I had seen this joke from anybody else, I, I, I wouldn't have done it, but department of the interior is one of the things that I, I got a soft spot in my heart. Not that they don't screw up. They do, but I, I, I can't divorce myself from the fact that, you know, my uncle was a forest ranger. I always, th- I always thought that was pretty cool. Uh, so that's going to do it for your terrible joke. Corner. I'm out and the FUD is building up. Okay. Expect it. Expect the FUD to increase. It's, you know, it, it is what it is, people. Might as well have fun with it, figure out how to meme the shit out of it, how to pull the teeth out of it, how to make it look completely stupid. Do whatever it is you want to do, but whatever it is that you do do, uh, don't um, don't let it get to you. It's We've seen it all before. We will see it all again, and I will see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin And, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.